Welcome. I'm excited to be here today with you with my friend and colleague, Mary Jo Rapini, who's a licensed psychotherapist specializing in sex and intimacy. And today we're talking about some common barriers to sex and intimacy. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan, and thanks for joining us today. We've got some really exciting stuff to talk about. You know, you might have seen a few weeks ago, my friend and colleague Mary Jo Rapini and I were talking about some issues to do with family dynamics during this coronavirus pandemic. But we wanted to change gears a little bit. And when she and I were talking this weekend, we were discussing some of the common barriers that we found in our own practices to sex and intimacy. So we thought that might be something really interesting and juicy to delve into. So, um, hi Mary Jo, how are you today? I'm doing great. I love joining you with these and I just, I think it's such an opportunity for women and men who love them, if they're watching this, to ask questions, to comment, to get back with us and to learn something. I mean, we all have this free time well, sort of free while we're working at mm -hmm. home. And what better way to enhance your relationship than to tune in with two professionals and, you know, get the real scoop. Yeah, isn't, isn't that a great opportunity? And I've really noticed that too, that we can look at this time that we have in many different ways. But for me, I've really tuned into the space that it's given us to think about some of those things that we sometimes have just put off for later. So one of those things in our relationships might be really looking at what the barriers to intimacy and genuine connection might be. And the funny thing, Mary Jo, when we were talking yesterday, is that when I asked you what you found in your practice were the two most common barriers to intimacy, I said, holy cow, that's exactly the same two that I've found in my research and in my practice. And so what we found that we'd love to talk about today is uh, body image issues and resentment. So that's a big topic, but Mary Jo, tell me about how those show up in your, in your practice and with your experience. Well, you know, the most significant way, because I work with couples and I work with men and women who suffer sexual dysfunction, what many times happens is that women will come in and they know they don't feel good sexually. And when they have, you know, maybe they're going through perimenopause, maybe they're going through menopause, maybe they've just had a, an argument with their partner. They go to see the doctor and oftentimes the doctor will start giving them treatment and that may involve hormones and different methods that they can do to increase their libido but those fail and the reason they fail is because when they come to see me they find out that the underlying cause was not medical at all the medical actually was trying to work against the root cause the root cause is resentment and there's, I was telling Susan earlier, there's no bigger sex killer than resentment. And the, the bizarre thing is, I think almost every couple that is married more than a year starts building resentment. They start holding back. They start 
gritting their teeth. They start doing things rather than talking about it, or they get very um, rushed with life. And rather than talk with each other, they talk at each other. And mm -hmm. so I think understanding resentment and and learning to deal with it, learning to forgive yourself and your partner are going to be real big determinations uh, of how you're going to express yourself sexually. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. Um, and I actually wrote about it in my book. I was, if we have time, I'll quote a little bit that just really highlighted what you were talking about from some of the interviews that I've had uh, with some of the patients who were gracious enough to talk to me for my book. But my experience and my understanding is that the resentment is just unspoken anger. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the many ways that we close down to each other because if we're not communicating honestly and holding that anger inside, maybe we're trying to appear calm when we're really not. Maybe it's just something that we have been taught not to talk about or, or the very many reasons that we choose not to express ourselves freely. Mm -hmm. Then those barriers start to build between us. And I don't know about you, but most of my patients and certainly in my situation, we don't feel like intimately connecting with someone when there's this wall of unspoken anger. And I've just found that so um, enlightening to find out. And, and what you said about treating patients medically, I totally agree. There's an old joke from medical school, which was based in no science whatsoever, but we always used to say that 90% of women's libido comes from above the neck and 90% of men's libido comes from below the waist. And True. that's not scientific, but right. <laughs> I just right. got some, a little bit of truth in there. Yes. You know, I, I get a lot of my clients will come in and, you know, resentment, it, it, feels, it feels different than not being attracted to your partner. So a lot of my couples will say, you know, I'm just not attracted to him anymore. Like when he comes to bed, the physicalness, like, you know, he just, his body is out of shape or he doesn't, he just doesn't do it for me anymore. That's different than resentment. Resentment forms a repulsion. Like when the partner comes in and tells me, um, my partner repulses me. That is the seed of resentment. And I've seen it. That word especially is so significant because if you don't deal with that, the repulsion just turns into a total withdrawal of intimacy, of a form of connection. And then if you go to couples counseling, you'll find that it, it's usually not successful. And the reason it's not is because that repulsion has already taken root. It's already a seed that you've kind of nurtured without even knowing it. Yeah, isn't that true? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to read this one little quote from a patient that I think put it so well. And this is from my book that's going to be published this summer. And I'll start with myself speaking here. Uh, speaking of resentment, through my own experience, as well as my interviews with the study, the number one libido killer for women and probably men is resentment. Sophie put it this way, 
I spent my entire first marriage being resentful. I was angry about so many things, but had no good way to share my anger, and I kept it all stuffed inside. Sometimes my anger created so much pressure that it would burst out in scary, confusing ways through tiny cracks in my armor, like a soda can opened up after it's been shaken. And then I would return to my calm, bottled up state. With no tools to understand a healthy way to release anger, I grew a garden of resentment that was fertilized and watered every day by patterns in my marriage that part of me knew were not in line with my authentic values, but yet I couldn't speak about it. Something in me knew that if I started the conversation, our marriage would end, and I wasn't ready for that yet. So I kept my resentment and my libido was non-existent. Mary Jo, what would, what would you say to someone who came to you who is that far into this repulsion, resentment, and, and really this patient, this um, woman is feeling like there's no hope for her marriage? Okay, so first thing, and I love that question, first thing she would have to do is she would have to talk to someone about it before she went to her partner. Because the thing with resentment is when you feel it, you project it. So my guess is because her partner and she, he, he, was, he or she was the main person, the most intimate, it became projected onto him, but it didn't all belong to him. Much of it belonged to her. It was her responsibility and rather than deal with things she could do that would help her de-escalate the anger, she just kept bottling it up. And then she told herself something many people tell themselves. It's a myth. It's a myth that if I am my authentic self, my partner would leave. Because let's face it, if you're not your authentic self, and your partner hasn't left, then if you start becoming, take small steps into reclaiming that person that you, that he or she married, it only makes sense that it's going to start opening things. But you cannot blame them. You have to come, you first of all, find things that you can do to release the anger. Maybe walking, maybe journaling. You should start with a therapist to help you get at it, to talk about it. Start looking at the behaviors you chose and undo them one, one behavior at a time. So if someone gives you the wrong drink when you order your coffee, do you usually just suck it up and take the drink and say, well, I don't wanna bother them, they're busy. Or do you say, you know what, I, I might have not, I may have not communicated this well, but this isn't the right drink. May I get another one? This is what I want. When you say it like that and you're kind to the server, nobody, I mean, to be kind, you don't have to be cruel. To be honest, you don't have to be cruel. When you start making little advocacies like that to protect yourself and say what you really want, it starts generalizing. It generalizes into all your relationships and it will generalize to your partner. People who get resentful, Susan, they're not only resentful toward their partner, their friends know it. Their friends usually know 
there's something underneath there because they say yes, yes, yes a lot. They don't say no. Yes, that's a beautiful reflection. And it bounced off something that this person said about her knowing that this wasn't in line with her true nature and just not having the tools to learn how to find herself. So that's actually something else that I wrote about in my book and that you and I discussed that the most important thing to do first in my experience and and yours as well to reestablish intimacy is to is to have that relationship with ourselves first to know who we are so that we can show up in our 100% aliveness with our partner and that means clearing up all of these unspoken feelings in in a way that will probably require a professional so that it doesn't start a fire but i love the way you said just taking one small step at a time susan it is scary isn't it i mean when i there's certain people that in my own life they intimidate me and for whatever reason i mean you it's not rational the people that make you feel like you can't you can't um, afford the risk of losing them or you want their approval so bad. So many times what we do is we just suck it up and we go along with it, but that isn't really good for you. And it's not good for me. I mean, the best thing is if you just start working on advocating for yourself and as Susan, what Susan just said, becoming self-aware. I would just keep a tab every day of how many times I give in. Because the number of times you give in, I mean, to be flexible is good, but to have no boundaries is not, and it leads to resentment. Mm, That's so true. And I've had experiences in my own life, and then with many of the patients that I work with, that we almost make a deal sometimes with ourselves, like, okay, I'm just going to stay in this pattern until the kids graduate from high school and then I'm going to have the courage to leave or I'm just going to start on January 1st or I'm going to go to a course with someone like Mary Jo or Brene Brown and maybe next year because I don't have time right now. There's all this deal making of putting this off and during that time we're losing our own precious moments of life. So I think every day that we spend living as someone else than our very best self is is time that we're wasting and it's so precious it is i you know and not only that susan you had alluded to this before in one of our get-togethers i don't remember but whatever you model your you know if you have children they're watching and so a lot of women will tell me I, I couldn't confront my authentic self for me. I just didn't have it. I never saw it modeled for me, but I could do it for my kids. Like I decided that if I showed them that this was what it meant to be a woman, then not only my daughters were gonna be affected, but my sons, because my sons are gonna look for somebody who just has no boundaries and is just, you know, not herself. She always tries to make, you know, make people pleased or take care of others or do the right thing. And sometimes the very, the most right thing is to stick up for yourself and get what you want. 
go for what you want. And then, you know, the whole belief thing and anybody, let's face it, anybody who really loves you, if your spouse or partner or whatever relationship you're in, they're going to want to know who you really are. So, yeah, I, I love that idea. And, you know, sometimes that may lead to finding out that the relationship isn't going to be ultimately supportive. Uh, one of the sayings from my coaching world mm -hmm. is that if it's more important for you or your partner to be right than to be curious, then that might be a relationship that you want to move away from. Uh, so sometimes we're so stuck in being right mm -hmm. and not open at all to being curious about finding out who our partners are or who we really are or how we can please each other intimately. Uh, we've really got to make sure that both people are open and willing to participate. But I do agree with you. If somebody really loves you, mm -hmm. they will be on board with this if we give it to them in little small doses that don't sound too scary because it right. is scary. Exactly. And I, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, Susan, but I tell women all the time, if if you don't feel like sex, if you if you just can't bear the thought, then look for other ways to be intimate. There's there's five ways to be intimate, to share intimacy other than other than sex. And so if you start exploring other ways and if you're so repulsed or in that stage where you're just so mad then finding intimacy is going to begin with you looking in the mirror and to start talking to yourself like you would you would have wanted your mother to talk to you or when you were a small child because somewhere along the line if you've allowed resentment to get that intense in your life someone didn't do their part to mother you when you were small Mothers are supposed to reassure their child. They're supposed to validate how they feel. They're supposed to continually remind their child of what an awesome gift they are. And if you didn't have that kind of parenting, then when people take advantage of you or they, you know, they're constantly perpetrating your boundaries, it's only natural that you're going to get angry about it. First of all, you're going to allow it. And second of all, you're going to get angry, but it's not it, looking at it from their point of view. It's not their fault that you lost yourself. It's not yours either, but it's your responsibility, right? Mm. I love that idea too. And uh, the, the concept of being 100% responsible for your own self and situation really resonates with me, but not to be 200% responsible for the relationship. I'm responsible for myself and my own responses, but I'm not going to take responsibility for everything that goes on in the relationship. And I think that's something that women often tend to do, especially when we're in this state of uh, people pleasing and not wanting to rock the boat, that we can quickly learn to say, oh, it's my fault, or yes, your behavior is acceptable. and like you said, not setting any boundaries. Right, right. I, you know, Susan, I was thinking about this in line with, you know, women who feel so bad about their bodies. 
because that's another one of the, um, I think that's another one of the boundaries around us that, that once again, when you're growing up, your parents kind of help set for you. But we're, we're forgetting that a lot of parents didn't. And depending on a woman's age right now, if they're menopausal, then that whole generation, they weren't focused on that. Like they, you know, I know I have so many patients that have told me terrible things. Their parents said to them, their brothers, their sisters, different um different influential people in their life. And in fact, there was a study done, several studies now, but in the Glamour magazine, I will never forget this study that 87% of girls age 13 through um, 24 hated their bodies. They said more than 80 things negative about their bodies every day. And then the article went on to say that that number got usually got better um, for a slight seven years. And then after that, it went high again. And mm-hmm. what women tell me now is that their biggest loss of libido is their aging body. They're embarrassed by it. Absolutely. And so those coming back to those same two things that you and I both found uh, throughout individual practices, I find that so interesting that as a gynecologist and a psychotherapist, we've both come across these two major barriers to intimacy. We talked about resentment, but let's talk a little bit more about this body image issue and body hatred, body shaming. And it's such a prevalent issue in women around the time of menopause. Again, in in the study that I present in my book that's being published this uh, summer, that was the the number one most negatively perceived part of menopause for most women, uh, above hot flashes, above everything else, was the changes in their body. And when we don't feel good about ourselves, with years of training, like you said, starting when we were children, it can be a real barrier to wanting to expose ourselves physically to someone else. And then not to mention our partner, our uh, male or female partner is often feeling the same way, like you said, and we're not mm-hmm. talking about it. It's true. And I, you know, I work in bariatric medicine and one of the things we found is that when women were um, harassed or sexually raped or perpetrated as children, 60%, 40 to 60% of those girls grew up to be morbidly obese women. So I run different groups for women and men who are who have what I call a food addiction. It's a it's in line with the bariatric surgery so they can learn how to manage this compulsion to use food to help calm their awkward feelings. But I think what's interesting is as women lost weight during that study because of the surgery, they went into these panic attacks. They had more panic attacks, more anxiety. And it just goes to show how, to me, women are, when you're hurt or when you're talked about or you're hooted at or whistled, you begin to see that your body is somebody else's. It belongs to someone else. And that's 
that's a terrible thing because when you give your body to what other people say is okay or not, you're basically giving away your sense of worth, who you are as a woman. The biggest problem with body aging right now is that it's got a very limited, a limited effect. Like there's only so, beauty is so limited that only so many people fit into that criteria. In fact, most of us don't. And if you start giving your power to whether or not people whistle at you or whether or not people think you're hot or whether or not you fit this this unbelievably bad body image that's shown all over social media, it's just, you don't have it anymore. It's not yours. And if you don't claim your body, you can't claim your sexuality. Because we yeah. one. That's so true, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. you know, I work mostly with menopausal women. So women, you know, 45 to 65, and I'm in that age group myself. And as our bodies change, I've noticed that looking in the mirror too, that, you know, wondering if I'm still sexy. And I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, my current husband and I have been together for about six years. Mm-hmm. And I was so in tune with this by that point, having studied it a lot and gone through a divorce, that before we were sexually intimate, I actually sat down with him and said, here's a list of things about my body that I don't feel comfortable about. And I just want to tell you about them right now so that when we're sexually intimate, I'm not going to be worrying, oh my gosh, is he noticing this wrinkle in my implant? Or is he noticing that the skin is saggy on my bottom? So I dealt with it by just saying, before we even get naked, I'm just going to tell you I've got these five things. And the funny thing is, he's a very good looking man and I would have never have thought of this, but he had about five things too. So we had this very comical conversation that really lightened the mood, just saying, all right, here are the things I'm scared of you seeing, and let's just get it on the table. <laughs> I love that. If you can introduce humor to, we yeah. all have flaws. And every, lighten up. every study I've read, and Susan, you know more of this, is that what determines how well women will go through menopause is how good they feel about themselves. So if you don't feel good about your body, if you don't find your own body attractive, then it's going to be really difficult for you during this season. And menopause is a transitional season. It has ups and downs. And I I would dare say, I think men go through menopause too. They go through menopause at a different, in a different light, in a different way, but they definitely go through it. You can't be on a beach and see older men and women and not see the body changes of both genders. It's just that women, we've gotten such a um, exaggerated sense of what we should look like and where that should is coming from. I don't know. I just yeah, don't. It's just this old and well old and ongoing conditioning where women our age have sort of fallen off the cliff of what's relevant in the media so we're not seeing pictures of beautiful older women in their natural skins and we're still 
comparing ourselves, like you said, to these completely unrealistic norms of younger women. Right. So, so when it comes to the intimate relationship, another interesting thing I found regarding body image is that we can have two people in bed together and they're each thinking that something's wrong with them. So maybe the woman's thinking, oh my gosh, maybe my vagina's too loose and he's not uh, feeling what he should. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, my ED's coming back. I'm losing my erection. It's my, he's, he, each one's just thinking about themselves, but nobody's talking about it. Right, and, and that is not gonna make great sex. And no. so much, I love your, your plan, Susan, to just come right out if you come out right away, it's going to be things you feel insecure. There's also a treatment. Like if you have um, a saggy bad vagina and you don't like the looks of it, you can get help. Susan knows how to help with that. If you maybe if you have painful sex, maybe it's something like taking a hormone or maybe it's something like trying another type of treatment you know even what you use as lubricants all those things are so important and you can make you know the use of lubricants part of your own touching like it's very important women touch themselves they they massage themselves they masturbate because you don't know where your erogenous zones are and you have 117. You won't know where they are if you depend on your partner to find them because they're Isn't gonna come out in general area that doesn't have as many. And obviously men and boys are not taught these things growing up. So if we don't teach them, they're not going to know. So in as much as we're not feeling as much pleasure as we wish we would, mm -hmm. again, we have to take responsibility for that, like you said, and, and find it out ourselves by exploring our own bodies and then have a conversation about it. Going back to, again, asking for what you want, which is not something that many of us are comfortable with, but yeah. in a little doses learning how to stand up for ourselves and say hey this is what i like i love mm -hmm. i always like to start the the conversation with hey i i really like it when you do this mm -hmm. I, I really love it when you do this right so that it's a very positive conversation that doesn't cause him to or her to be terrified that they're doing something wrong right. we want to compliment them for the things they're doing right and then give them some guidance on how to really make this the best experience possible and then vice versa that will open him up to be able to say hey when you're doing that i love the way you do this i'd like more of that and mm -hmm. less of this i susan i don't know how you feel about this but i always try to encourage people to say it when you're not in the bedroom like if you say it during lovemaking, sometimes it's yeah. your partner is trying so hard to please you and they may feel, they may take it as rejection and then it may create another sex problem that didn't necessarily have to happen. But all of this is a dance. And I, you know, my thoughts right now are, I had one client who told me that she, you know, that she had a glass um, shower and she put towels over the shower so her husband couldn't see her take a shower for 12 years. She, she said she never looked at her body in that shower either. 
I think if any of you watching this are in that place, it's, listen, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you. The only part that's wrong with you is you've accepted this as something to live with. And I, both Susan and I don't want you to do that. I mean, there are so many ways you can help and everything starts with one step. If you just take one step and you leave a question, from there, we can send you resources or send you ideas, then you take another step. There's just, you don't have to be ashamed of this miraculous body that you're in. Might have yeah, to so changes to it, but don't mm -hmm. be ashamed of it. Yeah, that's a beautiful reflection to end this with Mary Jo, because I, I so feel that, that many women have told me that they feel like they're living in a prison yeah. in their own body, but you know, we have the key. And it yes. doesn't mean that you have to have 100 types of plastic surgery to try to look like you're 20 at all. Mm -hmm. It's about acceptance and mm -hmm. learning to love yourself. And from that point, if there are things that you want to do, like if you have vaginal relaxation or other issues that need to be addressed, mm -hmm. or if your partner needs to take something to help with ED, or vaginal dryness or whatever. There, there are things that can be done, mm -hmm. but first start with acceptance. Mm -hmm. And the body that we have now, if you saw me in a bathing suit, it's not like when I was 20, but it's great. This is really the best time of life. And I, I think that uh, if we can change the way we look at menopause into an opportunity and an amazing way to learn all of these things about ourselves instead of something scary, we can really change the way we approach our lives and our families and our intimate life. I agree. And we just want you to be happy. Mm -hmm. So um, as we're ending today, uh, please, if you enjoyed the show today, uh, if you can like, follow, share, all those beautiful things, and then leave some comments. Um, as you know, I'm a gynecologist. I specialize in menopausal medicine. Mary Jo is a psychotherapist who specializes in relationships and intimacy. You've got two experts here who would love to answer your questions. And you can visit me on drsusan.com and on Mary Jo on her website, maryjorapini.com. Just, just yep. like it should be. Just like it And Joe is J-O, <laughs> not J-O. I know that's what. Just want to make our websites easy for you. Yeah. So we, we look forward to connecting with you. Uh, it's been wonderful to be with you here today and to be with you, Mary Jo. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.